Hello, everybody. Welcome to the DC Beer Show. I'm here, your host, Mike Stein. I am not your host, Jake Berg. You are now. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Jake Berg. I love soda. And I'm Mike soda. Stein. <laughs> and your dad jokes Insert are witty comment. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, we have a fantastic show lined up for you. Jake was here for the interview with Kate Bernat. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I am here with Brandy Holder. Brandy, what are you drinking? Oh, hey, Mike Stein and DC Beer fam. Oh, look at your cute little, like, Brandy snifter glass. What is, what is this? What are you drinking? Okay, I want to know what you're drinking first, because that's intriguing. And then I'll answer your question. I will tell you, I am drinking all oh. gold everything. <gasps> which I have because you and editor Jacob Berg went to Saints Row and the Sanco for release of All Gold Everything. Yay! Um, yeah, boom. Yeah. How Shout out to Kofi. Hey, Kofi. Shout out to Kofi Mero. What's good, Kofi? <laughs> I love him. That's what I'm drinking. I'm getting bubbly with this 8% golden strong. What are you drinking? Well, actively two things. The first thing is my last... Sapwood Cellars Keller beer. I'm super, I'm super bummed that it's my last one. So maybe one will magically appear in my fridge. (laughs) Maybe the beer fairy will bring me another one. And then also drinking a, not actively, but like I keep stealing sips of this other half big mosaic vibes. And if you are a good DC beer listener, you know that my favorite hop is in fact the mosaic hop and i'm pretty sure other half is like doing a mosaic beer week now i just i don't know mm-hmm. yeah beer week sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and they're like featuring yeah. mosaic hop beers and i'm like um i'm gonna be there every day so whenever that is i'm gonna be there every single day <laughs> so come say hi um so that's what i'm drinking this is called big mosaic vibes which are my everyday vibes all right that's cool. right <laughs> big big mosaic vibes not to be confused with mosaic dream or double dry hopped double mosaic dream yeah i mean other half is just known for their mosaic which if you're a fan of the show you know brandy's favorite hop (laughs) um moving right along i know brandy you are very eager to get into some events some happenings around town tell us what you're looking forward to as we get into august here yeah so i feel like things are well Things were ramping up or are ramping up. And then this whole Delta thing, everyone's kind of backtracking a little bit, which I understand, you know, just be better safe than sorry. But so this weekend, I am going to definitely be at Three Stars Anniversary Party nine years. I cannot believe that I've been going to Three Stars for nine years. (laughs) Um, Anniversary (laughs) Party is on Saturday, 12 to 8, I think. So I'll be there. Uh, with my bells and whistles. And on Sunday, Three Stars is also having a plant swap, which I'm a huge fan of because I'm a crazy plant lady. You can't see my living room, but if you could hear the plants, they're like, hey. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, Thursday, which is actually before this podcast comes out, so damn it. But Thursday was National IPA Day. which is exciting, which is kind of every day. But um, yeah, so Thursday, August 6th. So there's um, this cool beer event at Bark Social. 
which is a like dog park in Bethesda. And there's going to be like 13 breweries, like Triple Crossing and Denizens and Astrolab, Nepenthe and Vazen. And anyway, so that's going on. But, you know, that's after this podcast. And then that's really the events coming up this weekend. But I wanted to talk about something that I went to this past weekend, which was the ATAP takeover at Other Half. Oh, yeah. How was that? Yeah, it was great. I actually went Friday and Saturday. Oh, snap. I I feel like I'm there way too much. I don't understand why I'm there so much. I walk in, I'm like, hey, Joy, hey, Alex, hey, Matt, like, hey, everybody, hey, Victor. So it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of like my cheers other than Hellbender. I still love you, Hellbender. But Friday, I mean, and and Saturday was not packed, but pretty fucking poppin'. It was a good vibe. There were so many... Other breweries there, a lot of big yeah. juicy things, big ABV yeah. things. There were like a couple of fourteen percenters on there, and I was like, "Yeah, shit, <laughs> okay." <laughs> um, I have to drive, so I'm gonna have a little taste of it. Right, but don't drink and drive. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was it was a great great feeling. I mean, I, other half's really cool. And then I did want to talk about a couple of hiring or like positions that are open. So. I know that my folks over at Red Bear are looking for a brewer because their head brewer moved to Richmond. Shout out to um, Alejandro. Love you. Miss you. But, you know, they definitely would like to bring on somebody pretty rad. Shout out to Nicole. Love you. But they need somebody else, too, because it's it's just a lot of workload. And then Astrolab is hiring, too. So if you're interested in the beer scene, if you have any experience, you know, Simon's really patient and cool and will teach you how to brew beer from the ground up like it's he's really patient and cool so if you're looking for a, a beer position you know look into astrolab and red bear because they they're looking for folks so right on nice nice i think that's all we have going on oh and the dc beer share the august beer share is coming up and Ooh. that's invite only so <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're industry give me a shout out and maybe i'll invite you next time yeah hey, follow fam. us <laughs> on twitter facebook instagram at dc beer and if you tag us we will gladly regram or retweet you let us know what you're drinking yeah just to reiterate the fact that other half was pouring you know the Vale and burley oak and all these wonderful breweries um, from virginia some from maryland we love to see it you know it's just it's just wonderful to have a, a community that supports others We're excited for that. And as we get along into our interview here, we want to thank Kate Bernat for speaking with Jake Berg. If you don't know Kate, uh, she's a wonderful writer. She is a member of the leadership team at the North American Guild of Beer Writers. She is an award-winning author from the North American Guild of Beer Writers. You can find her work at All About Beer, Craft Beer and Brewing, uh, Good Beer Hunting. She's just a very prolific writer, and we're thrilled to have her on the pod. So listen in now, and we'll catch you on the flip. Hi, everybody. We're here with Kate Burnett, whose work has previously appeared in The Takeout and Draft Magazine. You may have seen some of her work in Craft Beer and Brewing and Good Beer Hunting. She's a beer reporter, and she lives in Missoula, Montana. She, like me, um, has a dog in the room, and you may be hearing various animal noises. Kate, hello. Welcome to DC Beer Show. Hi, thanks for having me and and my background dog. <laughs> we are excited to be here for sure. Excellent. 
we'll start with the regional peculiarities and variations of uh, what's popular, because I noted that you and Jeff Allworth were discussing that Scotch ale, which I find pretty interesting as a style to be popular, is still big in Montana, and pretty much all the breweries you go to have a Scotch ale. Jeff and I have been invested in that kind of peculiarity because his Birvana Patreon community had a discussion months ago about regional peculiarities, asking people what styles were popular in their areas. And I mentioned Scotch Ales, and everyone seemed really interested in that. And I pitched it to Montana Quarterly, which is a print general interest publication here, and they were interested in the why behind it. That was really exciting for me because that was a story that I got to write and report purely based on just curiosity. Like, why is this exactly? (laughs) Why are we this weird anachronism? So I got to dive into the history of Scotch Ales in Montana, which was pretty cool. But yeah, it's safe to say they are still quite a thing. And almost every brewery makes one. A lot of Montana beers have meddled at GABF in recent years. And Montanans love their malty brown beer. When I've had beer from Montana, it's primarily been Oostrule. It's a multi-brown beer, um, but it's, it's a brown ale. Um, I think it's fantastic. I just remember walking into like a dimly lit casino bar in Vegas, and I saw cans of it, and I was just like, oh, okay. There's enough air conditioning happening here where I think I'm going to have a couple of these, and it worked out very well. There is a state society, as sometimes happens in D.C., where some of the Mountain West states get together and throw a ball. Of course, this happens pre-pandemic. And so there is, for like one glorious evening, Moose Drool in D.C. Shout out to Big Sky Brewing. The Scotch Ale thing, though, that is, how did this come to be? So this came to be, as I think a lot of regional or local preferences do, with sort of one beer that becomes the beer (laughs) for craft drinkers. In Montana, and particularly in Western Montana, that was Cold Smoke from Kettle House Brewing, which is here in Missoula. And they were asked, I guess, or invited to have a beer on tap at Ski Resort in Bozeman, which was a big deal because the founder of Kettle House, Tim O'Leary, and his wife Susie, big skiers. So they, you know, were this is like the late 90s, the ski resort is like, yeah, let's put a let's put one of your beers on. And they happened to suggest a Scotch ale, but it had a Scotch name. It was called Big Pipes, like a play on bagpipes. Yeah, I mean, every Scotch ale has to have like a cheesy kilt joke, right? Or something. So it was called Big Pipes. And I guess no one was really thrilled with that name or even the idea of a Scotch ale. And then I guess a a sales rep or a distributor rep was like, well, what if you renamed it something that was like skiing related? Maybe people would be more into it. So they changed the name to Cold Smoke, which is the fine powder that blows up in your face when you're skiing or snowboarding. (laughs) Side note, I am not a skier. I'm going to get my Montana cred like revoked. If my phrasing of this all sounds awkward, it's because it is. But so they rename it Cold Smoke, which is the the powder, the snow that you're looking for when you're skiing that flies up. 
And then suddenly everyone starts buying it because it's like, oh, that's like such a cool name. That's like the thing that we're doing. So Cold Smoke becomes wildly popular among skiers and outdoor enthusiasts in Montana and just kind of becomes this cult hit that becomes also at the time associated with craft beer, right? Because this is the late 90s, early 2000s, craft beer is, is coming into its own in this state. And so most people's introduction to craft beer is Cold Smoke. Scotch Ale becomes what craft beer is in their mind. So then when they start going to other breweries, it's like, well, do you have anything that's like that? And thus a wave of Scotch Ales is born across the state. And they're all, many of them are quite delicious and medal winning. And it's a very exciting thing to have a little regional peculiarity and to have such good examples of a style that you don't see very much hardly anywhere else. So uh, I dig it. Are the breweries getting like really granular? Like are some of them doing like a 60 shilling versus a 90 shilling? Are there various like, we're going to do a wee heavy or we're going to do like this or that. And, you know, some of them are five and a half, six and some of them are 10. Yep. So I don't see them referred to as much with the shilling convention, but I see that, yeah, if you do drill down on the sort of beer judging level, some of the ones that get submitted to GABF would be classified as like Scottish export or we heavy or what have you. And then some of them are like a lighter version of the Scottish spectrum. I don't see that differentiation on menus here. It just always is Scotch ales. But if you talk to the brewers themselves, they'll explain the, obviously the categorical differences. And most of them kind of do fall on that lighter side actually, because Montana is about the outdoors. So it's like very strange to be drinking this 8% like heavy beer before you go ski or before you're out on the river. So most of them do kind of fall on that lighter end of the alcohol and sort of like malt richness spectrum. So we don't really have mountains here. I guess like the largest (laughs) like ski slope in Maryland is Wisp, kind of on like the West Virginia, Maryland border. They do have craft beer, but what they also have is um, an orange crush. I know that you have been you have been to DC before. Are you at all familiar with this concoction? No, but I want to know more. I was picturing like an orange soda, but yeah. alcoholic. So, so maybe it's correct like me. <laughs> your worst vodka, your worst triple sec, half of a fresh squeezed orange. Oh, I like the fresh juice. And then lemon lime soda, usually Sprite. Okay, I'm not gonna lie, that doesn't sound terrible. To me, um, I like anything with fresh citrus. You're getting some some vitamin C in there. That's nice. I would try that. Yeah. To our touristy listeners, like I should note that you can get craft beer. Orange Crush is sort of like the Delmarva Peninsula and Virginia Beach as well, like beach drink, and somehow migrated over to the skiing areas as well. But I bring this up because DC Brow, which is DC's largest brewery by volume, has transitioned into the hard seltzer market. And so they now make a line of seltzers that taste like Orange Crush, Grapefruit Crush, Lime Crush. And you have been reporting on the Boston Beer Company, which our listeners may or may not know, makes truly hard seltzer. Yeah, and not just makes truly hard seltzer, but basically is truly hard seltzer. I mean, as a company, if we look at where they're revenue comes from beer. Sam Adams beer makes up about 10% of Boston beer's revenue today. Truly is about 58% and Twisted Tea is about 
29%. So it is safe to say that Boston Beer Company is kind of a misnomer. They're basically their Boston fermented malt beverage, Boston seltzer. I bring this up because Brow introduced these seltzers. They're called Full Transparency in, I think, late 2018, early 2019. And they now account for something like 30, 35% of Brow's business. But it is nothing like what's happened with Sam Adams, because I feel like Sam Adams is now like a non-entity in terms of beer in DC. Yeah, it's around that you can catch Boston lager and like one of like there's someone will have their seasonal on, whether it's the spring or cold snap or summer lager or the Oktoberfest, but truly is everywhere. Yeah. And I think you just hit the nail on the head that it's a combination of truly just being a massive juggernaut and like a phenomenon. It's the number two seltzer brand behind White Claw nationally, but also, Sam Adams beer perhaps declining in, in relevance in recent years. So you've got the two, you know, opposing graph lines. So it's not quite just one or the other. It's one having this massive ascendancy while the other kind of fades into the background a little. But I mean, give me a good Boston lager any day. Like I, I still really enjoy that and will pick it up occasionally just to remind myself what it tastes like. Yeah, I think like you, Jim Coke, and myself are pro-Boston lager. <laughs> and we may be increasingly outliers uh, mm. in this. And it's too bad. It is that approachable sort of beer that everyone probably likes and is like a great kind of fridge staple. I guess there are just more versions of those now. Or I, I, I can't even say. It feels like it's due for a re- appraisal the way that people have recently decided that Sierra Nevada pale ale like is the hottest thing since sliced bread again and it's like of course it is but you know maybe Boston Lager also deserves a little bit of a a second wave. All right so that's an interesting point that I think I want to expand on because there I think certainly you and I belong to I think this like loosely organized group that we could call quote-unquote beer Twitter, and we like Sierra Nevada <laughs> Pale Ale. We also like Allagash White, and I am comfortable putting Boston Lager in that category because for the longest time, like that was when you walk into a bar, especially an airport bar, that was the best beer you could get, and it was perfectly fine. Like I would never go, oh man, just Boston Lager. I'd be like, cool, Boston Lager. You drink it. The malt is there. The hops are there. It's a well-put-together beer, but you wouldn't describe it as either being particularly malty or hoppy. It just, it is, and it's cool. And so Sierra Nevada um, Pale Ale, this all-cascade uh, Pale Ale, has had this cri- this critical reappraisal, at least among us. And <laughs> some Allagash White has as well, um, which would make sense because that's like 80% of what Allagash makes. And you all should buy it because it funds Cool Ship Red, just like you should keep buying New Belgium's Fat Tire because it funds all the weird Oscar and Felix stuff that I want to drink. But we haven't quite seen that with uh, Boston Lager yet. Do you think we're getting there? I don't know. I mean, this podcast is extremely influential, so hopefully, yes. Uh, Now everyone who listens to this will go out and buy a six-pack of it. Boston beer doesn't have the mystique of like an Allagash um, or Sierra Nevada, perhaps. Um, Among like more modern 
beer Twitter folks. Like, I think there's some ambivalence about Jim Cook and his politics and his, I don't know, place in the current industry. I don't know. I don't, maybe he's just not as easy of a hero as like a Ken Grossman or a Rob Todd. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking this. <laughs> but uh, it certainly does feel like Boston Lager could be in that conversation with other recently reappreciated classics for sure. It puts to me, like it puts Sam Adams at Boston Lager in a weird position because I feel like people have written dogfish off before. And I think I was certainly guilty of being like, oh, dogfish, whatever. Um, and it's easy for me to say that because I'm in the Mid-Atlantic and I'm spoiled and 60, 90 minute are everywhere. But then they come out with things like Sequench and you know, like these take off and you look at like IRI sales data and a whole bunch of people have been turned on to sour beer um, because of Sequench, which is like this weird combination of like a Kolsch, a Gosa, and a Blinnerweiss. They basically brew it, three things, thread them together, and then can it. Sequench feels like such an unlikely success to me, and yet I see the same data you do, and I even anecdotally see friends of mine that would not probably call themselves huge beer drinkers love Sequench. And I love that that's been a success for Dogfish Head. It's such a strange success, and that makes me love it more and feel like that's in Dogfish Head's lane, is like to have these kind of curveballs that end up taking off. But yeah, I was as astounded by its popularity kind of as you are, because it wouldn't have been something I would have maybe put my money on in its early launch. And yet it's been massively successful. So that's great. Good job, Dogfish Head. <laughs> as I tell people, like, hats off to them all the time, because they really did the thing there. Um, it is a, I think it's, it's a really weird beer. When it launched, it did appear on a bunch of like mainstream media's like healthiest beers or lowest calorie, lowest carb beers. I remember that being a thing, like they got a big men's health shout out. And I was talking to a retailer who, a small bottle shop who was saying that that was the moment where people started coming in who weren't beer drinkers and asking for Sequench. And that was fascinating to me because I always wonder how much like mainstream press of that sort can move the needle. And at least for this particular retailer was like, oh yeah, the minute that men's health thing came out and it started being on other sites like lowest calorie beers, yeah, people started coming in and ordering it. What are you working on next? Having covered like Boston beer and seltzer, like what is up <laughs> in terms of the reporter's notebook? Yeah, I think now is a fascinating time to be covering beer and alcohol generally because there is so much fragmentation and segmentation and differentiation happening within the industry that I could not have foreseen like five years ago. The rise of something like hard seltzer, the rise of ready-to-drink cocktails are fascinating to me and and what they're going to do to shake up alcohol overall, especially if they become more available at retail. Like, are consumers going to switch from seltzer to RTD cocktails? Are they going to switch from wine to RTD cocktails? Are RTD cocktails just going to become another beverage that plays in and among choices for other people? Yeah, so I am watching that. So this I want to expand on, because the far majority of seltzers 
build themselves, you know, like they're between four and five percent alcohol by volume, and they're somewhere between like 80 and 100 calories. With cocktails, it really does seem all over the place. And we, we've seen, I think, for decades now, there's a certain segment of the craft beer buyer who will show up and say, oh, I want the most bang for my buck. Like, I want something between like 8 and, you know, 15, I guess before it was 8 and 12%. You want to feel your feelings. And there, <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen, you know, like something like an Imperial Double Hard Seltzer out there on occasion. But I've also seen far more cocktails ready to drink, meaning in a can, in that 8 to 12 spot. And I wonder if that's where the ready to drink cocktails, like your cut waters, Devil's Backbone has one, Two Roads has one, where they're going to come in and try and sort of like get like the higher ABV end of that market. I think even when we talk about RTD cocktails, that category is going to segment too, where there are these like classic kind of strength RTD cocktails maybe that are that sort of 8 to 12%. But then I feel like there's totally room for the 5% margaritas. That is an interesting place that I think people are going to play because yes, if consumers are used to drinking White Claws and things that are around 5% and suddenly they're drinking the same volume, but it's 8%, it's going to be like, whoa, this is extremely uh, distressing, (laughs) perhaps. Canned wine has had this same problem where canned wine is really popular, but a can of wine is half a bottle of wine. And I don't know that consumers understand that. And uh, a pretty light drinker drinks the whole can and is like, I thought I had one glass of wine and now I am wrecked. Um, So I think as these category lines kind of fuzz and as the packaging of these products changes, there's going to be kind of a bumpy road until consumers and producers figure out how to deliver people the experience that they want in the package and the ABV that they want. And because it's so new in a lot of these categories, we don't quite know what that is yet. (laughs) And so it's going to lead to a lot of confused drinkers (laughs) for a minute. (laughs) And hopefully they're confused in moderation. Um, I know that I have have seen this firsthand with with the wine and in a can because it's, oh, it's like 12 ounces or even if it's eight or 10 ounces of wine. A standard serving of wine is five ounces, and so eight ounces of wine is a glass and a half. Um, yes, it's going to hit you differently. Then again, like if you know, if you can can an Aperol spritz and it tastes pretty, pretty good, like I'm interested in that. One of the products that I've been recently obsessed with is a product called Easy Wine, and it's from the company that makes Shaxbury Cider out of Vermont. But it's a it's a wine. It's made with grapes, but it's five percent ABV. And it's in a can. So it's in a 12-ounce can, like a sessionable beer. And I never knew I needed wine in that format until I discovered it. And I was like, this is the product I've been waiting for all summer. So it, it's really interesting to see then what that what occasions, right, that kind of a product opens up. It's like, well, now I'm drinking wine at times that I would never think about order, opening a bottle of wine because it's like during the day and I'm not trying to get super wine drunk. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to see these different products compete outside of their normal lanes. And I that's, I mean, to me as a reporter and as a drinker, it's like a fascinating 
time of innovation and change and kind of a free for all in like a cool way. Yeah, I would say like as like an observer and someone who like watches people and what they buy at the grocery store, it's just like it's very curious to me to see how this shakes out. Yeah. And yeah. I also wonder like how close we are to like artisanal for loco. Um, something that like you know where it's like we're gonna put this in a 19.2 ounce stovepipe and it's gonna be like 18 percent and uh, we know exactly who our target market is gonna be and then I go uh oh someone is working on that right now guaranteed yeah. uh, but but also I mean think about the the double IPAs in 19.2 ounce singles at convenience stores like from the the New Belgiums and the Sierra Nevadas of the world those are like really hot packages. Who buys the two ninety nine nineteen point two eight percent ABV double IPA? Like someone who's gonna get kind of drunk. Like there's, yep. yeah, like you said, there's a portion of craft beer drinkers who really wanna for three dollars really feel that three dollars. And I mean, heck, you can't do too much better than that for you know, bang for the buck, like in terms of a quality liquid. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes you feel classier than Schlitz. Then um, <laughs> that's cool. You it's yeah. It's less weird than showing up with steel reserve to your friend's party. I mean, no offense to anyone who shows up to steel reserve yeah, parties. Um, shout out to my friend, Bill, um, who routinely <laughs> shows up with steel reserve and Molson um, triple X. I'm glad you have a specific person yeah, <laughs> to like, shout out. That's fantastic. He's not going to be listening to this um, <laughs> until I make him aware of it. Um, but that's like that's his move is like that that black plastic bag. I feel like people don't want to call it malt liquor anymore, but it's yeah. high high gravity lager is um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what we would say. Yeah, if it's a double IPA, that kind of does the same thing, but allows you to feel this like veneer of, of you know, sort of sophistication or, you know, or maybe you just really like the way it tastes. I don't I don't know necessarily every single person's motivation, but I think it's a really interesting package that we would have never expected from craft beer seven years ago. I have had like the, the 19.2 ounce stovepipe of Dogfish 90 Minute, and um, <laughs> it's a lot. Um, it was, it, it, it was handed to me and it's not an experience I'm like really like looking to repeat. But <laughs> uh, I, can, I can say it was there. Yeah, I feel like after I would drink that volume of 90 Minute, I would be seeing visions. I would be on some kind of a, a vision quest. Um, it would probably be great. But uh, yeah, that's a, that is a lot is a really good way to put that. On, I think, a, a more serious note, you are a woman who reports on beer and craft beer is having this me too moment, which is good and necessary. Um, it certainly happened to breweries, bars, restaurants, establishments here in DC, as I'm sure it has there in Montana. Curious for what your take is on it. And then also I have a weird, perhaps inside baseball beer media hypothesis about some of it. Ooh, I am excited to hear your inside baseball hypothesis. Man, though, as for my reflections on this whole thing, I was on Zoom call just a little bit earlier today for the North American Guild of Beer Writers, uh, which is a fantastic group whose leadership I am part of. And we were having a Zoom call about this sort of reckoning this moment in beer and how we cover it as journalists. And when Jess Infante from Brewbound, who was leading this discussion, 
said, so it's been two months since Brianne Allen started posting these Instagrams. I thought, only two months? My God, haven't we been in this for like a decade, it feels like? I mean, that that I just feel like it's been occupying my mind for, for so much longer than two months. And I guess, you know, yeah, I also find it very necessary. I guess where I'm at with it now is that I'm worried in a sense that the just general discussions that we're having are good and necessary, but I think it's it's really important to see tangible action taken against the worst actors. And I'm not calling for some kind of retributive, vengeful witch hunt or anything, but I think there is a difference between all of us sitting here and saying, yeah, it's really bad that this happens. And then seeing consequences for the people who we can credibly believe have been responsible for for wrongdoing. So where I'm at is sort of wanting to see more reporting around the specifics of this. Like now that we have this huge groundswell, let's as reporters dig into this. Let's see what's going on in the in the local scenes that we cover for local reporters or you know, at the large corporations, if we're kind of national business reporters, like, let's talk about this in tangible terms, not just vague, like, it's so bad. But that's, you're catching me feeling that way today. My feelings on this are changeable. And some days I feel hopeful. And some days I feel dejected. And some days I'm angry. And some days I'm kind of resigned. And you're, you're catching me on this particular day. <laughs> no, but I think like, like, all of those feelings are fair and valid. And it should, it should be noted to our listeners that you did not hear Kate call for like a Maoist purge and like street justice. So No, no, no. I When I say that I would like to see bad actors rooted out, I mean through very careful means, whether that's reporting, careful reporting that adheres to journalistic ethics and, and verifies and corroborates accusations, or that's through, you know, the legal or professional bodies, I guess, that exist to, to kind of step by step look into this, not calling for just a, a massive purge of every dude who ever worked at beer. Maybe part of the problem. Women's representation is one area that I really do feel like we've made tangible progress. Like, no longer am I being asked to just sit in women on beer panels which is great, which was definitely a thing five years ago, and maybe that was necessary at the time. But I really do see more women in places of power in this industry and creating their own places of power that might be kind of outside the normal, like what women beer influencers are doing. And I know that's a hot button issue that I'm probably not going to wade into, but like it's undeniable that they're creating their own space that's hugely influential as their name, you know, as that would suggest, they're drawing more women into beer than probably what the entire industry was doing collectively, you know, before Instagram. (laughs) So, you know, it's cool to watch women take places of traditional power and also make their own places. Yeah. That was well said. It's so hard to know what comes next or what should be done. I mean... I tend to kind of deflect some of that by saying that I am a reporter and it takes every ounce of my energy to just document the story correctly. Uh, So then asking me what needs to happen next is often like I don't feel qualified to 
answer that because so much of my effort is in just accurately telling what is happening right now. But there are many people smarter and more forward-looking than myself who are figuring out what comes next. And I look forward to the work that they are doing. Yes, <laughs> I don't have that capacity. There is at the least like a nominally membership-driven Brewers Association who um, is charged with responding to what is being said, what is being reported. And hopefully also um, there, there are brewery workers out there with some power. As we have seen at least a couple instances since um, Brianne's initial Instagram posts. Yeah, there are a lot of people organizing in this moment in various ways, locally, nationally, um, just in their workplaces. And and it it isn't going to be just one group that solves this, right? Like, I don't think this is the BA's problem that we can expect them to solve. So, you know, this is going to be a coalition and it's going to be people working locally and people working nationally and people working in their workplaces uh, to just eventually get the industry to a place where all workers feel safe and like they're contributing their ideas and thoughts and valid feelings to the industry. So that's what I look forward to. The BA is a trade association. They're not a workers association. They're here to grow craft beer and to increase craft beer's market share, which hopefully leads to or jobs in craft beer, or dues-paying members. But What the BA's role is and should be in this discussion, I think, has been debated to death almost at, at this point. But even if the BA was a, a perfect and incredibly social justice-driven organization, like to lay this an industry-wide problem at any one group's feet is probably unfair. I, can, I concur. But it's also appropriate because, um, I mean, the BA and craft beer don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, they exist in a broader society, and these are societal wide. Yeah, I do think there are some interesting variables within beer that make it kind of a unique um, industry to work in. I mean, one, that it is you are producing an intoxicant as, <laughs> as your end product, and therefore you live in and around substances that alter people's states of being. But it's also, it combines manufacturing and hospitality, which are two types of workplaces that can be really difficult for non-men and non-white people. So I think, you know, there are aspects of beer that make it slightly different, but you're completely right that these are human beings acting within a human society and therefore reflective of the biases and issues that, that come with that larger society, for sure. If I can turn the microscope over to us, if there isn't us um, as beer reporters, beer journalists, I think I can humbly speak for myself as a beer blogger. I find it interesting that it took a pandemic for a lot of this to come out. There's a critique of beer journalism, beer reporting, as, and it's a similar critique with spirits, with liquor, with wine as well, that it's somewhat access-driven. And these stories came out only when it, there was a pandemic that cut off some of that access. And only then that's when some of this began to be reported. Yeah, I think that's an extremely fair criticism. And I would also say that, you know, it's notable that these stories did not come out through the traditional media. They came out through social media. 
and through a woman who did not consider herself a journalist or a reporter, but a member of the industry. So I think that bears keeping in mind, why did these come out that way? Why didn't they come out through the traditional media? And I think there are potentially a lot of answers to that. One, yes, perhaps reporters would not have been as receptive to these stories. Uh, Perhaps women who were sharing them didn't feel they could trust reporters or that reporters would care, which is kind of an indictment of the media, perhaps. But also that, um, and this is something I've thought about a lot in my role reporting on allegations that have come up, is that what good reporters do is not exactly in line with what survivors of assault or or abuse or harassment would like to be treated with. Like, so our role as reporters, right, is to try to verify things, try to pin down a story, try to ask all these kind of invasive detail questions. And that's not how most advocates who work with assault survivors would ever tell you to talk to a survivor, right? So it's like the process of just talking to media can be kind of re-traumatizing and can be really difficult and add to the burden of sharing your story in a way that, you know, typing anonymously on social media does not. It allows you to have way more control over your story. You control who sees it, exactly the language that's used, how it's, you know, how it's kind of put out there. And so I think that's a part of it too, is that these women perhaps felt that they would have the most control over their story on social media, not in the traditional media. And I think that means that reporters have to think about how we can make it safer and more comfortable for survivors while still maintaining ethical standards. And that's a really hard line to toe. But I think thinking about that and asking those questions will make media better at reporting these stories. Thanks, Kate. I think that was incredibly thoughtful. And also, I think on that note, that's well where we will end the interview. Please read her work, Good Beer Hunting, Craft Beer and Brewing, among other places, including Montana Quarterly, which you may not have known about. But the fact that Montanans are drinking a bunch of scotch ale is endlessly fascinating to me. Think about that, DMV residents, as you drink IPAs brewed with Crystal 30 malt, as you have done since the dawn of time. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kate. Much appreciated. Thank you. This is great. Come out to Montana and drink some scotch ale sometime with me. (laughs) Yes, I would very much like that. Once again, thanks to Kate Bernat for speaking with Jake Berg. I am Mike Stein. Brandy Holder, what do you want to tell our guests before we sign off this week? A, that interview was fucking rad. So I hope you enjoyed that. And um, really, you know, just keep going out and drinking beer, but safely, please. Because I, this whole, this, this past weekend, having to put my mask back on, I was like, y'all, come on. <laughs> can, can we not backtrack? Because this sucks. It's really Paul Abdul. Two steps forward. And <laughs> I can do that entire rap part, by the way. You're welcome, everybody. And if I, anyone can come up to me at any brewery, if you see me, say hi and challenge me, I will fucking nail it. I will perform. It's okay. I'm here. Let's do the yeah. Abdul dance off. <laughs> Just be safe and be kind and always be kind to your people behind the bar because they are super stressed and things are changing all the time. And go support them and give them money, please.
And if you have any leftover money, give me some. Okay, bye. Free beer. <laughs> Recognize our breweries who are still here, are still in it. They've busted their butts for the last, you know, uh, almost 18 months. Year plus yeah. now, we're glad to have them around. So please tip big. We still think tipping 25 to 125% is cool. It's the coolest thing you can do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm jazzed about the fest beer that is not important for this week's episode, but we can talk about it next time. But Atlas just yes. sent out their email about their fest beer. I'm sorry, we're like doing the sign off and I just got excited because I'm, I'm going on Thursday. Finally, so, yeah. Best beer. Atlas Festia is on the way. I know you're very excited about it. And you know what that means. All the other festies are right behind it. Festy besties? (gasps) Hashtag. Like a Fauci ouchie, but a little bit uh, softer. (laughs) Anyone who has a Fauci ouchie can be festy besties with me any day of the fucking week. That's right. That's right. You can't can't see me, but I'm doing like a heart thingy over my Big heart love. (laughs) <laughs> Sending out love to all of our DC Beer fam. Thank you for listening, and we'll hear you all in two weeks from now. Cheers. Adi- adios, Bye. amigos. Bye.